like I said, my name is Bram, one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, I want to say welcome to you. Uh, grateful that you join us for worship. If there's anything that we can do to serve you, help you get connected to the community here, uh, we would genuinely love to do that. Like Caitlin mentioned, one of the best ways to get connected to the community at River City is to be part of a small group. And uh, like uh, Caitlin also said, we're studying the parables in small groups this fall. And, and so getting a, involved in one of those communities is just a great way to grow in your faith, to build relationships, and to just get plugged into the community here at River City. And so I want to invite you into that. All the groups, none of the groups are like closed or anything like that. All of them are open to everybody. And so uh, if you, uh, whatever day works for you, find your schedule, uh, fill out a connection card, or just uh, better yet, even just say hello to somebody's face who you saw in one of the slides about small groups. They would all love to get to know you, help you get plugged in. So uh, anyways, I'm excited to open God's Word with you guys this morning, uh, especially so this morning because we're starting a brand new series together. We're going to be walking our way this fall through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Now, if you are new or visiting, then uh, it's important to know that working our way verse by verse through books of the Bible is kind of our MO here at River City. It's just kind of how we roll. And, and we just spent the last six months or so working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter in the New Testament. This fall, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, which is a, a narrative in the Old Testament. And so different genres and different styles. But the reason why we do that in the, is because the truth is, is that what I have to say is highly unimportant. Uh, but what God has to say matters more than anything. And so what we want to do in our time together as we gather is instead of trying to think of, instead of me trying to think of some interesting or creative thing for us to talk about, we want to spend our time just studying God's word and seeing what he has to say. And so allowing his word to shape our time together and to shape what we talk about and how we talk about it and all that fun stuff. And besides the fact that it's way too hard to come up with creative sermon ideas out of nowhere, right? So ain't nobody got time for that, right? So uh, that being said, I'm really excited to uh, study the often ignored Old Testament book of the Bible, Nehemiah. It's likely that many of you have never even heard of this book, let alone if you, if you have at all. And if you have, it's likely that you've been taught that, that the book of Nehemiah is a, is a book about a guy who's a great leader who builds a wall. And while both of those things are true and do happen in the story, uh, they aren't the point of the story at all, really. Neither of those things are the point. You see, Nehemiah does lead an effort to build, to rebuild a wall, but that project gets completed before we're even halfway through the book, and it's not even the climax of the story, right? And so that's not really the point. It's part of the story, but it's, not, it's definitely not the point of the story. And as well, we see that if, if Nehemiah is a great leader, I mean, the, the dude can organize and administrate stuff like a champion. Like, I am officially jealous of, like, his administrative and leadership kinds of skills, right? He's the, he's the guy that you're like, yeah, put that guy on the leadership team. Like, it's going to make everything go better, right? Um, but if the book was just about giving us an example of a great leader to imitate, uh, then it probably wouldn't end, spoiler alert, uh, with basically everything accompl he accomplished getting undone in just a few years after he's done, right? And so that's not really what it's about. And so the question is, is, so if the book of Nehemiah isn't a story about a great leader or a guy who builds a wall, then, then what is it actually about? What, what is the story about and, and how does it pertain to us, right? And so to answer that question, we, before we dive into our study this morning, we really got to zoom out a little bit to kind of understand how this little story fits in with the bigger story of the Bible and God's great plan of redemption and, and the overarching storyline throughout Scripture. And, and when you look at the overarching storyline throughout Scripture, what you want to see is that the, one of the most central themes, the, one of the most central threads that ties throughout everything is that, is that God is at work building for himself 
a people who will live for the praise of his glory. God is our building for himself a people who will live for the praise of his glory. And that's where the story begins in Genesis with the creation of humanity as God's image bears reflect his glory reflecting representatives who he commissions to multiply and to fill the earth with his glory and worship. And that's where the story ends in Revelation as God's people from Every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered around him in heaven, around his throne, praising him and worshiping him and and honoring him and glorifying him forever. And from beginning to end, what we see throughout the storyline of the Bible is that the way that God calls his people to glorify him and to praise him is ultimately about living lives that conform to his word and to his ways. In other words, Ultimately, worshiping and glorifying God is is deeply connected with obeying his commands. Now, it's just a quick aside here, but the the reason why obedience to God's commands is is at the heart of what it means for us to worship and glorify him is because God's commands aren't just telling us what God wants. They are a revelation of his very nature and character. And so obedience to God's commands is fundamentally about living lives that reflect the nature and the character of God and reveal who he is and what he is like to the world. And see, what what happens is is over and over and over again in the storyline of of the Bible is that what happens is is from the very beginning, God's people fail at doing that. God's people fail at doing that. Instead of living in obedience to God and, and glorifying him, we see throughout the Bible what happens is that God's people choose to reject God's good rule and authority. And they choose to live as though they are God and to decide what they think is true and right and good, living as they see fit. And that's what the Bible describes overarchingly as sin. And God's not dumb. He knew that that would happen. And so what we see from the very beginning is that God promises that one day he's going to send a savior, one who will rescue and redeem and overcome the problem of sin and death in the world. But in the meantime, while God's people wait for this coming savior who will ultimately rescue them all together, in the meantime, what happens is that we see that God makes a covenant with his people. We read about it in Leviticus chapter 26, where, where God promises, he makes a promise to his people. He makes a covenant with them. And he promises that he's always going to be faithful to them. And that if they would worship and obey him, if they would live for him, then he would bless them richly. He would bless them materially and spiritually and physically and relationally and nationally and, and all this stuff. That he would bless them richly. But if they didn't obey his commands, and if instead they rejected him and they worshiped other gods, then God's promise is that he would stand in opposition to them. Instead of gathering them together to live as a community who displays God's nature and character, what we see is that God promises that he's going to scatter them throughout the nations. And sadly, uh, that's exactly what happens God's people, uh, they choose option two. They go for option two, the option where they choose to reject God and live for themselves and live for their own glory, and they disobey God. And finally, in, in 586 BC, after all kinds of different discipline and all kinds of ways of, of God offering people chances to turn and to, and to repent, God finally allows in 586 BC for the Babylonian Empire to completely conquer and destroy uh, all of Israel and to, uh, to destroy the the city of Jerusalem and to send the people living there into exile throughout the nation of Babylon, just as he promised that he would do. 
But what's important that you see in the story is that punishment for sin wasn't the end of the covenant that God made with his people, right? It wasn't, the, it wasn't the end of the covenant. You read at the end of chapter Leviticus 26, we read that there's, there's another promise that God makes to his people. And he says that if while his people are scattered in exile, if they would confess their sins and turn in repentance back to him, that he would remember the first part of his promise to them, to gather them as a people who will live for his glory and to bless them and to bring them into his place. God reiterates that promise again in Jeremiah 29, adding that after 70 years, all of, after 70 years of exile, all this would come to pass. And in turn, he would bring people, his people back to Israel and back to Jerusalem. And sure enough, what we see is that the Babylonians who had conquered Israel and Jerusalem are themselves conquered by the Persian Empire under a guy named King Cyrus. And we read in the book of Ezra, which is kind of the, the prequel to Nehemiah, if you will, how in fulfillment to God's promises in Leviticus 26 and in Jeremiah 29, how God stirs up the king of Persia's heart. He stirs up King Cyrus's heart so that he decides to allow all of these exiled Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. And start rebuilding the city and rebuilding the wall and rebuilding the community there. And Ezra goes on to tell us how under a guy named Zerubbabel, the first wave of Israelites returned and they eventually rebuilt the temple. And years later, under a guy named Ezra, who's a priest, he takes another wave of people back and he begins to continue the work of rebuilding and reforming and renewing this city. Now at the end of Ezra, what you find is, is that things are not really going well. The, the temple's rebuilt, but the city is still in ruins, and all the work's really been stopped, and the people are not excited about being God's people in the city and living for him. And, and that's where we pick up the story of Nehemiah. And, and what we're going to see happening throughout the book of Nehemiah is that God is using this man, Nehemiah, to bring about the fulfillment of all the promises that he has made to his people. And so the story of Nehemiah then is really not a story about Nehemiah or about a wall, but ultimately the story of Nehemiah is a story about God. It's a story that is a proclaiming God's sovereignty and his faithfulness to keep his promises and to prove himself faithful to all that he said that he would do. But Nehemiah isn't just a book about God it is also very much so a book about God's people. You see, specifically, it's a book about how God's people re respond in hope and faith to who God shows and proves himself to be by committing themselves, by giving their lives to live as his people for his glory in the city and to rebuild not just a physical city, but to rebuild a community of people that heralds with their words and with their lives the great glory and awesomeness of God. And so then Nehemiah, uh, ultimately, if we ask a question about the story, what is, what is Nehemiah all about? Well, it's really a, a story not about a great leader who builds a wall, but in the end, Nehemiah is a story about a great God, a great and awesome God who calls and empowers his people to give themselves towards building a community that will live for the praise of his glory. It will be a people, the, a community that honors him with their lives and proclaims who he is to the nations. And if we will approach the story from that perspective, oh man, there is so much for us to learn here. There is so much good for here. See, the reality is that you and I, we are not Nehemiah. 
But Nehemiah's God is our God. And we are not the nation of Israel. And spoiler alert, neither is the United States, right? But we indeed are the people of God as the church, right? Who First Peter tells us are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so really the story of Nehemiah and God's people there is really our story as well. And there is much for us to be learned. And so my heart as we study this book is that we might be wildly impressed, not by Nehemiah or the wall that he builds, but by the God that he serves. And that as we see God for who he is, the great and glorious God of heaven, that we might be a people who are deeply committed to building a community that lives for his glory in our families, in our workplaces, in our city, that he might be worshiped and that he might be glorified in and through us. And so, with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into the beginning of Nehemiah chapter one, see what God's word has for us there. Jesus, thanks for our time in your word together this morning. We are so grateful uh, that you would keep it for us so that in it we might know you. And so, God, we need your help as we do every week. We need you, I need you to empower me, God, not just to teach what is true, but to teach with power and authority that I do not have apart from you. And Jesus, we all need you to enable us to hear and respond rightly to your word and to be willing to put ourselves under your good authority and to respond rightly to it. And so, Jesus, for all of that, we just say uh, we need you. And so, God, would you meet us in our need for you? Would you show us more about who you are and what you're like so that we might be a people who are wildly impressed with you and who are deeply concerned to live for your glory in our day as well? We pray all this in your name, God. Amen. Amen. Well, I suppose we should begin in the beginning, Nehemiah chapter 1. These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakali, in the month of Kislev. That's November, December time period there. In the 20th year, we see in chapter 2, that's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, 445 BC. While he was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands, let your ears be attentive and your eyes open." To hear the prayer of your servant in praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. And we have acted wickedly, very wickedly towards you. And we have not obeyed your commands and your decrees and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. But remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there, and I'll bring them to the place that I've chosen as a dwelling place for my name. 
And they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. So Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer of the king. All right, now there is a lot going on in these first couple of verses, so let's, uh, <coughs> let's dive in, see if we can't make some sense out of the stage that Nehemiah is setting for us here in Nehemiah chapter one, right? Book opens by telling us that these are the, the words of Nehemiah. Literally, most of the book is actually basically his journal entries. It's his uh, times of prayer, just talking with God about what had happened throughout the course of his life and the days and what, things that were going on in ministry. And Nehemiah was an Israelite, a Jew, his great, 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 great grandparents would have been among the exiles who were conquered uh, in Babylon, in Jerusalem, in five in the mid five hundreds, and sent into exile throughout the Babylon, uh, the Babylonian Empire. And and the reality is, is that other than that, we don't really know too much about him. Uh, he doesn't come up again in the New Testament. We don't really see him mentioned anywhere else. The only other thing that we really know about him is that we find out in verse 11 that he's the cupbearer for the king of Persia, which, which meant that he was the dude that would taste all of the food and wine that would come before the king and make sure it wasn't poisonous, you know? And I have just like, I don't know about you, but that job seems like uh, a mix of incredibly awesome and highly stressful, right? Because I mean, like you are eating like the king's food day in and day out, but you are also hoping that it doesn't kill you, right? It's like, it's gotta, it's gotta be a tough tension to live in that job, right? But the, the point is, is that, is that Nehemiah is not some religious professional, right? He's not a pastor, he's not a priest, he's just a regular dude working a job, right? And this is just an aside here, but I hope that as we study this book, I hope that's an encouragement to you. So often in scripture, you read about people doing things for God who seem like kind of spiritual giants. And it can feel sometimes like, I, I don't even, I'm not like that at all. But Nehemiah is just a regular guy who God empowers and uses to do incredible things for his name and for his kingdom. And, and so I hope that is an encouragement for you. God uses regular people all the time to make much of him and to do incredible things. And so Nehemiah is just doing his job. He's chilling in Susa, which is kind of the winter getaway for the Persian kings and the empire there. And, and one day, Hanani, one of his brothers, comes back from Judah. That's where Jerusalem was. And it's likely that Hanani was one among the group of people that would have gone back in that second wave of exiles with Ezra about 10, 15 years prior to the, to the writing of this letter. And so he's coming back, right? And so Nehemiah asks him, what's going on in Jerusalem? And how are things going? And the reality is that the report is not good, right? It's not good. Hananiah verse 3 says, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace, and the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And what we see is that Nehemiah's response is profound, right? Verse 4, he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed. We find out in chapter 2, and the story continues, that, that some days... That was actually like three or four months that he is spending broken. The dude is just wrecked, right? His heart is a mess. And it's all because of this report that's come from, from Hananiah that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and God's people are living there and they're in great trouble and disgrace. And, and that is obviously a very sad reality, right? But 
But the truth is, is that that was not a new reality. That, that was not a new reality. See, none of this information that Hananiah brings back to, to Nehemiah, none of that would have been new information to him. You see, the walls of Jerusalem had been reduced to rubble by the Babylonians about 140 plus years ago, right? That was, it was not new information. And even though a few waves of people had returned to the city since then to begin to rebuild it and, and repopulate it, Nehemiah absolutely would have known, like we read about in Ezra 4, that the, the very king he's working for, King Cyrus, or uh, um, King Artaxerxes, rather, he's the guy who's actually put the kibosh on any further rebuilding stuff going on, right? And so Nehemiah, who sees the king and works with the king literally every day, would absolutely have known what was going on in the city of Jerusalem. And so his response then, if we're honest, right, seems a bit much, right? Like seems like pretty intense for like information that you already would have known that would not have come as a surprise to you, right? It's kind of like if you had learned in school about how Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and you knew that, right? And then someone kind of brought that up a little while later and like you needed to spend three or four months in your bedroom because your heart was like destroyed over that, right? Like it seems, it seems pretty intense for some not new information, right? So the question that we got to ask then is what is really going on? Right? What, what is happening here? What is going on? What is underneath this? He's just like, is he just like mentally unstable or is there really something else happening here with Nehemiah? Well, what you see as you read Nehemiah's prayer is that what's really going on, what's got him so worked up and what he's so devastated about for months isn't just that some walls are broken and some people are in trouble and disgrace, but that those things and the reality of those things is tarnishing the name and the reputation of God. You see, the city of Jerusalem was God's city. Verse 9, we're reminded that Jerusalem was the place that God had decided in the Old Testament where his very name and presence would dwell. And it was to be a place where God was worshipped and his word was honored and his people would live together as a community in obedience to him, declaring to the world who he was and what it was like and how great it could be to live under the kingly rule and authority of the great God of the universe. And so the, the walls of this city and the people in this city are inextricably linked with God's name and his reputation. And so what Nehemiah is so upset about, what he is so distraught over is that their dilapidated state is is proclaiming a false message about God. That he is weak and powerless. That there is nothing to be gained in worshiping him. And that he cannot be trusted and his promises do not come true. And Nehemiah hates that. Because what Nehemiah knows is that it is not true. He is a man we see in verse 11 who delights in revering God's name. He's a guy who worships God with his whole heart. And he wants God's name to be hallowed and cherished and held in high regard as it should be. And he hates the fact that the walls are broken and God's name is being shamed. And so Nehemiah is concerned. He is distraught over God's name, not just a city and not just a wall. But that still doesn't explain why it's only now that he's so broken and mourning about that reality. And and like we said, is it that information, his reaction, it seems like a bit much and a bit late. And the only explanation that we have, the only explanation that really makes sense is that, is that in the hearing of this report about the status of the city, 
that God used that encounter in order to give Nehemiah his heart for the city and his heart for his name and his glory and his people. That God caused Nehemiah to see things the way that God sees them and to care about them in the way that God cares about them. I'll never uh, forget uh, one summer morning, Aaron, uh, years ago, Aaron asked me if we could meet up for coffee. And what he wanted to tell me that morning is that he was pretty sure that God was calling uh, my wife and I to uh, be a part of planting River City together. And I almost laughed, right? Uh, because uh, if I'm honest, it was absolutely not on my radar in any way, shape, or form, right? Like, Things were going well, we were going, right? And besides the fact, we didn't even really like Dubuque, right? Like, Dubuque was the place you went when you lived in Platteville, like, if you wanted to eat something other than Mexican or pizza, right? Because that's the only restaurants that exist in Platteville, right? Or if you, like, desperately needed something from Best Buy, like that, like, so then you went to Dubuque, right? And there's a Target for some reason, right? It's so like, wow, it's, it's not, that's just great. It's a place that you went and used, but it didn't really matter, right? We thought Platteville was great and the city that we missed in, things were going well, but I told Aaron that I would pray about it, even though I was pretty sure that there was no way that was happening and that he had definitely misheard from God, right? And uh, honestly, I didn't really give it much more thought after that until a few weeks later when we met up with a pastor in Dubuque who had planted a church here about 10 years prior. And, and that day, I remember, he just drove us around the city of Dubuque, and he just talk to us about the people here and the places here and, the, and all the things he was praying about that God would one day do and the things he wanted to see happen and his heart for God's work to happen here in the city. And, and he just told us stories about the great need for the gospel here in the city of Dubuque. And I wouldn't have been able to tell you this in the moment, but I think looking back for me, that drive around the city that day was a lot like getting Nehemiah getting the report from Hananiah. See, that wasn't new information, but it came in a new way. You see, and it wasn't immediate for me like it was for Nehemiah, but over the course of a few months, I realized that God had given me a heart for the city of Dubuque and the people that are here, that they might know Jesus and love him and follow him and live for him. And the reality is, was is that I absolutely did not care about that before. It wasn't something I had worked to manifest in myself. It wasn't something I had reasoned my way into. It was something that God gave me his heart for, something that he caused me to care about in the way that he cared about it. That's the only way to describe that. You see, and the reality is that sometimes God does that for us. He is always calling us to have his heart for the places that we're sent to. But sometimes God does a work where he gives us his heart for it. And by his power and by his spirit, he causes us to see things the way that he does and to care about them in the way that he does. And that's my heart for us as a church, that God would give us his heart, not just for our city, but for our families and for our community and for our workplaces and for our schools, that, that, the, that we might be a people who care about his name and his glory in the places where we live and work. Because the reality, church, is that, that this God that we worship and that Nehemiah worships, he is utterly glorious. He is worthy of every ounce of praise and every honor we can muster to give him and far more than that. And we read in Nehemiah's prayer, we get, we get just a glimpse of how incredible this God is. He begins by addressing God as not just a God, but the God 
the Lord, the God of heaven. That title is a title the Persian would have, worshipers would have given to their own God, uh, their own God, Ahura. But Nehemiah says, no, the Lord, Yahweh, is the one true God of heaven. He is the great I am, the one who is and who was and who always will be. He is the true God of heaven. And he alone is great and awesome. There is no one greater and no one higher. He alone is the maker of everyone and everything, everywhere. And he is the one who is the king and ruler and authority of all places and all times and all peoples. And so he is the one who is truly awesome, who is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. But this God Nehemiah worships is not just high and mighty and great and awesome. He is faithful and loving. Verse 5 goes on to say that he keeps his covenant of love with those who would love him and keep his commands. Like we talked about in the beginning, the whole book of Nehemiah is a story ultimately that's proclaiming the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. Promises Nehemiah reminds God about in verses 8 through 10 about how God promised that if his people were unfaithful, he would scatter them. But if they would turn and confess their sins and, and repent, that he would gather them again to be a people who would live for his glory in his place, showing the world what he's like. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing. He's repenting and he's confessing of his sin and, and the sin of the nations and the sins of, of his family because the reality is that what Nehemiah gets is that God is holy. He is altogether separate. He is pure and set apart and good. And Nehemiah and the Israelites and us, we are not. We are sinners who have rebelled against God, who have not obeyed him and not honored him as we stood. Instead of worshiping God and living lives of worship and obedience unto him, we have all rejected God's good leadership and authority. We've all lived lives that enthrone ourselves as king as the arbiters of what is true and right and good. And so we are not just people who do bad things. All of us are people who are mutinous rebels against the great king and creator of the universe. What's incredible that you see about this God in Nehemiah's prayer is that, is that he doesn't just, he, yes, he disciplines his kids. And he disciplines his people, but he does it because he wants to redeem them. You see, he is not just a God of, he's not just merely some God of anger or, or punishment. He's a God of redemption. Nehemiah quotes parts of Deuteronomy when he remembers how God redeemed the Israelites by rescuing from slavery in Egypt. In verse 11, he says that God did this by his strong and mighty hand. As New Testament believers, what we know is that the story of the Exodus and of God's rescuing of his people in slavery in Egypt was really about a foreshadowing of how one day the Savior that God would promise that he would come and rescue people from not just physical slavery, but from the ultimate slavery to the enemy of sin and death by sending a Savior, Jesus, who would pay the penalty for our sin to redeem and buy back a people for his glory so that we might have new hearts with new desires and new passions to love him and live for him, like Nehemiah, to delight in revering his name. So as we open our book this morning, I, the study of this book in Nehemiah, I just want to ask you, is that the God that you are worshiping? 
Is that the God that you are worshiping? See, the reality is that like Nehemiah's prayer does here, the way that we pray says a lot about the God that we are functionally worshiping. I want to ask you, what do your prayers reveal about the God that you are functionally worshiping? Is he powerful and glorious and loving and good and faithful? Is he one to be trusted and depended on? Is he one who you know will hear you? Or is he a God who is weak and small? not worthy of your time or attention. Or maybe he's powerful, but he is not good. He's a God you have to try to manipulate or try to, try to beg him to get you to hear and respond to you. The way we pray reveals a whole lot about the God that we are functionally worshiping. And I say that to you not to guilt you or shame you or not to get you to doubt yourself or something like that, but I, but I say that because the reality is, and I need you to hear this, is that unless we have the kind of view of God that Nehemiah does, unless we see him as the great God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love and who is faithful to redeem and to renew and to, and to be able to confess sin and, and to forgive and repent and return to, unless we see him as that kind of God, then we will never be willing to give our lives for his glory. And we'll either be unimpressed with him and impressed with ourselves wrongly or we'll be afraid of him. You see, neither of which fill us with a life of joy given back to the king who's given himself for us. So as we begin this book together, my prayer for us has been that God would show us more of who he is that we might see his great power and his glory and his love and that like Nehemiah did, God would give us his heart for his name and his glory to be known in our city. So my heart is that God would cause us to see him for who he really is and to be wildly impressed with him and to be full of hope because God proves himself always to be faithful the one who can be counted on, the one who is worth giving our lives to, surrendering our lives to, the only one who is worth living for his glory. And as we see him for who he is, that we would be all the more committed to being a people who love to build a community that proclaims him and that heralds him who, a community that loves to live in obedience to his commands, not out of duty or obligation, but out of love for him, out of a desire to honor and worship and praise him, and out of a longing that as we do that, that our friends and our neighbors and our families and our coworkers, that they might see the great God of heaven in and through us. That's my prayer for us as a church as we, as we study this book the reality is that remembering and celebrating who God is and all that he's done for us, that's what we're doing every week when we take, when we take communion together. Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is the perfect image of God, the exact representation of his nature and character. He, he is the revelation of God, and what we see and what we're celebrating in communion is that this great God, the king and creator of all, did not demand his rights, but instead took the form of a servant offering his own body and blood to be broken and shed for us. 
So communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember, to remember all that God has done and to remember who he has proven himself to be, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of faithfulness of love, who redeems and who calls us to be a people who live for his glory so communion is a chance for us to remember that so that we might be filled with a love and a gratitude and an, and a, an awe for him that overflows in lives lived for him and for his glory as his redeemed people. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if he is the great God of heaven, if you have hoped in him to be the one who saves and rescues and redeems and keeps his promises, then I encourage you, go back during our time of worship and take communion. There's a table in the back on the left and on the right and you can dip the bread in the juice or you can take a, pack, a communion pack back to your seat. But whatever you do, you don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not, if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and if that's something that you want in the first place, then I just, one, I want you to know you are so welcome here. But, want, but also I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. You see, communion's about remembering and celebrating what we have put our hope in. And God's not after rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's, he's after a heart that is hopes in and is surrendered to him. So talk with God. Ask him to show himself to you this morning. As we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I would encourage you, all of you, spend time just talking with God. Ask him like he did for Nehemiah to give you his heart for his name and his glory to be made known in your family, in your workplace, in your school, in your home, in your co with, your, with your coworkers and your neighbors. And ask him as well, to give you a view of him that will lead you not to begrudgingly give yourself to him, but a view of him that captivates your heart and attention, that sees him as worthy of everything he calls us to be about. Ask him to cause you to see him that way. He wants to do that. Ask him that he would. Let's pray. King Jesus, we uh, come before you this morning and we just want to confess like Nehemiah does that uh, that we are sinners who live for ourselves instead of living for you. But also, Jesus, we want to remember like Nehemiah does that you are the great and awesome God, the God of heaven who keeps his covenant of faithfulness and love, who, re who redeems people by your strong hand. And so, Jesus, we want to put our hope and our trust in you. And we want to ask, Jesus, that you might cause us to see you the way Nehemiah does, as the one true God who is worthy of everything we have to give. And we ask, Jesus, like you did for Nehemiah, that you might also give us your heart for our city and for the people here and for most of all, Jesus, that you might give us your heart for your name and your glory, that it would be the thing we care most about. We just say, Jesus, we, we cannot manufacture that in ourselves. We cannot create it of our own accord. Only you can give it to us. And so we ask, Jesus, for our good and for your great glory in our city and in our families and in all the world that you would give it to us. We pray. Amen.